0: Thank you for joining us on The Dirt. I'm your host, Brian Powell. If you're new to our show, The Dirt is a radio and podcast program tackling environmental policy and environmental justice in the state of North Carolina. We feature compelling guests sharing stories, knowledge, and expertise you can't find anywhere else, and today is no exception. So let's dig into it. If you've listened to the show before, you know that the pork industry holds a lot of sway in North Carolina, despite factory farming practices that contribute heavily to a public health crisis in our state's rural communities, particularly rural communities of color. A piece published in The Guardian, The News and Observer, The Charlotte Observer, and The Durham Herald Sun took a look at how well the state has been enforcing laws about how pork producers manage massive amounts of manure waste at their operations and other pollution concerns. It turns out that the state of North Carolina has been operating in a world of its own with regard to government protection of pork polluters at the expense of people in the environment. I spoke with the author of this piece, freelance investigative journalist Barry Yeoman, as well as Sam Fromarts, editor at the Farm and Environment Reporting Network, which helped make this piece a reality. Here it is. I am joined today by Barry Yeoman, an investigative journalist based in Durham, with recent bylines in The Guardian, National Wildlife, The Washington Post, many others, uh, including the Food and Environment Reporting Network. The Columbia Journalism Review describes him as, quote, one of the best unsung investigative journalists working in print in the United States. Yeoman specializes in becoming a part of his subject's lives. He works hard to dispel the image of the parachute journalist who drops in, grabs the story, and runs. That is high praise from what I personally consider one of the top authorities on journalistic standards and professionalism. Uh, The Columbia Journalism Review. Barry, thank you for being here.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Also with us on the phone is Sam Fromarts, editor-in-chief of the aforementioned Food and Environment Reporting Network, also known as Fern. Sam is a longtime journalist and editor with work in Reuters, Bylines and Fortune, The New York Times, The Post, many, many, many more Fern describes itself as the first and only independent nonprofit news organization that produces award winning, high impact, investigative, and explanatory reporting on food, agriculture, and environmental health through partnerships with regional and national media outlets. And Fern is she- seeking to shine a light on injustices and abuses of power within the food system, both corporate and governmental, and examining the impact of Food and Agricultural Practices on Public Health and the Environment, a topic that we discuss frequently here on the show, uh, a topic that is much deserving of more public attention and awareness. So we're very happy that both of y'all are doing this. Sam, thank you for taking the time to be with us.
2: Great to be here. Thank you.
0: So I specifically wanted to talk to you both today about a a recently published piece on the pork industry in North Carolina that – Barry got into uh, discussing how how the industry is regulated by the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality and some of the the practices of of the industry. I'm interested in, first and foremost, why Fern thought it would be a good idea to look into this uh, before we get into how Barry went about reporting on it.
2: Yeah, so we were... Aware of stories about, uh, the North Carolina, um, hog industry and the wider live- livestock industry. Um, specifically, you know, we had seen the lawsuits against Smithfield that had been, uh, filed by rural, uh, rural residents, you know, who lived near, um, these hog facilities, um, uh, um, which they, which they won. Um, and, uh, we were simultaneously looking at a number of states um, where rural residents had um, opposed um, large-scale industrial livestock facilities, mostly for reasons stemming from pollution. And we had seen a lot of local reports um, on on um, these actions by rural residents.
3: Uh, but we were
2: wondering if there was some way to systematize what was going on in rural communities. And so what we did was we um, we filed with state authorities, um, states with large um, numbers of livestock operations, to see uh, what complaints had been lodged against these facilities, um, which you can get, you know, in the form of, a database. That work took about a year, uh, wow. and um, we we found uh, uh, other major states had thousands of complaints. And um, for the period, the decade we queried, North Carolina had 33. And so, it immediately raised the question. Why did North Carolina have only 33 complaints um, that were made public, especially at a time when um, the industry was facing lawsuits by rural residents? So uh, I just want to be clear, these, are, these were a, a request for public records of complaints. And um, I mean, Barry can explain it in, in more depth. But the public records of complaints is not equivalent to the total number of complaints. In other words, the thirty three that they released to us were the only ones that were made public. So uh, that really launched the the investigation that Barry got involved in.
0: yeah, that that certainly seems like a, a red flag to to anybody with uh, some common sense. I want to point out to listeners that you can you can find this story. Uh, now on thefern.org, it has also appeared in The Guardian, as well as some of the McClatchy papers here in North Carolina. I know it was in the News and Observer, uh, the Durham Herald Sun, the Charlotte Observer. Um, I'm not sure if it was in any others or not. I So in the piece, Barry, you, you note that in 2019, the Department of Environmental Quality suddenly validated 62 public complaints. And that... So, you know, as we just heard, that's twice as many as uh, in the past, you know, six months before that as in the previous decade. What the heck is going on?
1: Well, the first thing that we learned was that in 2014, uh, North Carolina's lawmakers passed a bill that basically shielded most complaints. Uh, The law said that unless the complaint is validated, meaning that there is a finding of a violation, the the complaint is not public record, and the sponsors of that bill, um, the people who led the fight for that bill, who are close to the the hog industry, basically said that a hog farm should be innocent until proven guilty and should have have its identity shielded until uh, complaints are validated. The problem with that is that we learn that that North Carolina often will make these informal findings where they'll send an inspector to a hog farm, and the inspector may find something wrong, and and he or she will talk to the farmer and say, you know, you got to fix this. And the farmer will fix this, and no records are kept. And this informal policy meant that, that even when an inspector's Found something wrong it wasn 't necessarily documented and therefore turned into a public record and that's that's part of why there were only thirty three complaints now, there was a cascading effect because because North Carolinians who lived near hog farms and were suffering some of the noxious effects of living near hog farms, which included uh, strong smells. And uh, health symptoms, they would they would see that there were no public complaints, that nothing was being done, at least in a visible way, and so they wouldn't make complaints either. And so it became something of a snowball. So, so folks who have been critical of the hog industry have taken many different uh, tactics to challenge challenge how North Carolina regulates hog farms. And one of them was filing a complaint in 2016 with the North Carolina Office of Administrative Hearings in which they said basically complaints are not being investigated, are not being taken seriously. And after Governor Cooper took office in 2017, the two sides, the, the neighbors of hog farms and their representatives and the state negotiated, and they came up with a new system where there was a process for, for investigating hog farms. And as a result, the first posting of hog complaints was, was put online this spring. And as a result of this new process, a higher number of, of hog, hog farm compla- – or livestock f- farm complaints were – was acknowledged and investigated. and in fact, in about half of the complaints, they found some evidence of violation, and formal action was taken.
0: So I want to ask you because we've I've personally spoken to and and we've occasionally spoken on the show to uh, impacted community members who have had to deal with some of the uh, things that you just described coming from hog producing. Uh, facilities. It is, and you you hinted this in in the story. There is a sense of uh, intimidation, um, and a sense that your complaint's going to go nowhere, as you just described. So, how like, how challenging was it for you to connect with some of the the people from this community to kind of get their take and. How would you describe, I guess, the the pork industry's cooperation with you um, while investigating this story?
1: Sure. So it is true that there is a feeling of intimidation and people are reluctant to talk. Um, the pork counties in North Carolina, which are centered around Duplin County on the coastal plain, are small, small and rural and people know each other. And there is fear that if you make too public a stance, you will be blacklisted. And as a result, there were some neighbors of hog farms, even ones who have spoken out in the past, who were reluctant to talk and who said privately that I'm not getting involved anymore. This is making my life too hard. That said, there were people who were were happy to talk and – Part of part of how how you do that is you hang out, you spend time in a county, you you make yourself known, and you explain people explain to people why you're there, and you show an eagerness to listen. And as a result, there were people who stepped forward and said, "I will talk with you." And those folks described um, lives that had been shrunken by living next to increasingly large hog farms that were now industrial scale and where the waste um, from the hogs was being sprayed on farm fields and it was pervading every aspect of their lives. Uh, you know, people in rural eastern North Carolina, they live outdoors. They they have picnics. They They have cookouts. They they dance outdoors they play music outdoors and a lot of people had been chased from the outdoors inside in sealed homes because they couldn't live outside anymore they couldn't hang their clothing on the line they couldn't they couldn't appear in public and not feel like their clothes smelled like like hog waste uh, there was a lot of humiliation they couldn't invite relatives over because they were embarrassed and so there were both neighbors of hog farms and also people who who represent neighbors of hog farms. The head of the local NAACP spoke with me, and the an organizer with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network spoke with me. So, so I felt fortunate that people were open to sharing their stories with me.
0: Right, and and I'll just say you you mentioned in the piece, and we've discussed it here, that this is an issue that. Has been found to disproportionately affect communities of color. Um, African Americans are more than one and a half times more likely uh, than white people to live within three miles of an industrial hog operation in North Carolina. Uh, Latinx communities, indigenous communities, also more likely to live near these operations. And study after study has documented that a very negative health impacts uh, correlated with living. Uh, near some of these facilities, there are also a number of other uh, polluting industries and and sites that happen to be sited in these places too. Everyone kind of i think just tries to put everything there but um, tell me what how would you characterize the north carolina pork council
1: the north, the North Carolina pork Council is the umbrella organization for for the pork industry in North Carolina, and they have Um, largely taken a confrontational stand toward the press they would um, not talk with me for the story Uh, they did supply several documents that were helpful in helping me understand their point of view, uh, helping me understand why they they were criticizing certain studies that were done including the three mile study um, and and so, so, so our conversations were happening entirely um, through email and and through the sharing of a handful of documents. Uh, they and Smithfield um, would not would not actually pick up the phone and talk with me.
0: Have you received any feedback from them since this
1: was published, Sam? Yeah, we have, we have gotten
2: feedback that they, you know, they disagreed with the story. They felt it was inaccurate. Um, They said that um, they cited a document, um, documents filed with the state legislature that point to uh, numbers of investigations of complaints that are not reflected in in the number, the the 33 uh, number that we used over a decade. Um, And we made the point that these uh, were public. You know complaint records so whether if if a, if a complaint was investigated um, and as I said you know there was no no, no finding of, of wrongdoing though the complaint disappeared and our our story really focused on you know the transparency of the process and we did specifically ask uh, the North Carolina um, Department of Environmental Quality how many complaints, in total, they had received over the 10-year period, and um, they said they could not release that number. So that that number is an unknown. It may be, you know, who knows? Maybe It may be as high as other states, you know, in, in the thousands, but maybe in the hundreds. We just don't know what the total number of complaints uh, were in that decade period because um, they are not in any public record. At this point, the only the only documented complaints are the 33 that were released uh, by the public records officer uh, uh, in the in the North Carolina um, D.E.Q. So um,
0: that sounds to me like they that sounds to me like they they know a number and they just don't feel like they can share it with the public. Is that your sense of things or or do you think it's an unknown even to them and they don't even want to say that?
2: I, uh, I uh, Personally, I don't know, um, but I think, um, I mean, the law states that you know the complaint uh, doesn't exist unless there's a finding, you know, uh, you know, against against the against the farm operator. So I think under uh, a narrow, you know, or strict legal definition, those complaints no longer exist. Um, whether they exist in some form or, you know, uh, uh, and can be, can be retrieved, you know, who knows. But, um, um, but they are not available uh, publicly. You know, they're, uh, they're redacted from the public record, if you will.
0: You are listening to journalists Barry Yeoman and Sam Fromarts discussing an investigation into the state of North Carolina's regulation of industrial pork producers down east. We'll continue with more after the break. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. Welcome back to The Dirt. I'm your host, Brian Powell. You are listening to an interview with journalists Barry Yeoman and Sam Fromarts discussing industrial agriculture in North Carolina and the other work of the Food and Environment Reporting Network.
1: One thing that's worth noting is that in the latest batch of complaints that were made public, the six-month period ending um, um, this spring, uh, DEQ did say how many complaints were filed total and how many complaints were validated. And about half the complaints that were filed were, in fact, validated. There were 138 complaints. They were all investigated, and 62 were validated. And to me, that that shows that 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 e- even by DEQ's definition, about half the complaints have merit, and so that that makes the thirty three number even more striking.
0: So I want to talk a little bit more about DEQ and how challenging it was reporting on what was happening there. I can't I can't help but notice a a kind of circular element to the story it begins with a DEQ a regulatory body basically almost utterly failing to document uh, publicly complaints against industrial pork producers then we discover this uh, changing of the guard a newfound willingness to provide some level of transparency or enforcement efforts which seems good positive And then it seems to end almost uh, back at square one to me because, well, tell me about the environmental justice mapping tool and how the agency plans to utilize uh, this technology.
1: This is a really good example of where DEQ seems to be, be running politically scared. As a part of another settlement, a civil rights settlement that 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 a group of environmental and environmental justice um, advocates initiated, which was settled under under the Cooper administration, DEQ promised it would develop an environmental justice mapping tool, which would basically show where where industrial livestock stock facilities are in relationship to where people of color live, and they set an internal deadline, and they missed it. And that was important because, at the time, the state was getting ready to issue its five-year general permit for hog farms. And because it missed its deadline for creating the mapping tool, it meant that they could not use the mapping tool in the process of developing this permit to make sure that the permit actually complied with, with, with civil rights laws. So environmental and environmental justice advocates asked DEQ if they would issue their general permit for a shorter amount of time. And that way, they would have time to develop the mapping tool. And then in a year or in two years, they could come back and have a new general permit that that is compliant with federal civil rights laws. And what DEQ said in response was, we don't have to do that because we're not developing the mapping tool for the purpose of of regulation we're not planning to use it to make permitting decisions we are using it strictly as a public information tool and the reaction of environmental justice advocates is what's the value of an of a mapping tool, if it's just for education, if it's not going to be used to actually change things, to actually make for better policy, make for better regulation, then why have one at all?
0: You begin the piece, and this will be the last thing, and we'll move on to, to some of the other work that Fern is doing. Uh, you begin the piece with uh, an anecdote about Kimper Dad, who's the Cape Fear Riverkeeper, flying an airplane ahead of a storm uh, and documenting some of the violations that the pork uh, operations were uh, conducting um, back in, I think, 2016, something like that. DEQ, uh, according to the piece, was reluctant, and in fact, would not refuse to use any of the GPS-stamped, high-resolution images taken by Cape Fear River Watch in any of their enforcement efforts. That was then... In 2019, uh, do you get the sense that their philosophy on that has changed at all?
1: This is an interesting question. I asked DEQ that that question, and they would not respond. And, and again, um, uh, DEQ is politically vulnerable. They are funded by the state legislature— They have had funding cut. They are being super cautious in not saying anything that might antagonize uh, the, the friends of the hog industry in the state legislature. And therefore, it's hard to really read if they would view similar evidence any differently now under the Cooper administration than they did in 2016 under the Mercury administration, which was when Kemperdet flew over uh, Duplin County right before uh, both Tropical Storm Hermine and Hurricane Matthew.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the Food and Environment uh, Reporting Network, FERN. I'm just curious as to, you know, for, for folks who don't know, how did FERN get its start? What's it all about? And what's what's next for it?
2: Yeah, so Fern was actually started by journalists like me. It was a very small group of people, and this was it was started. uh, We began talking around about it around 2009, uh, when you know when the the economy was in a deep dive and um, uh, media was just shedding jobs. And what we were seeing was a lot of reporters, um, with very valuable, um, skills and, um, like Barry, you know, who were not, um, who were essentially being underutilized because, uh, because the media business model was broken. And so we thought if we could get, um, some funding to support journalism that we could, we could do these Investigative stories and partner with media companies to produce them. Um, when we initially started, we thought that the main um, the main thing we were bringing to the table was that we would have money to support the stories, you know, and help underwrite them in partnership with with other, you know, with partners like media companies. Um, it turned out that that wasn't the main thing we were bringing to the table. The main thing that we bring to the table is, you know, our expertise, our relationship with really knowledgeable and, um, you know, highly skilled journalists and, um, and having the ability to, uh, produce really, um, high impact, um, um, you know, terrific, uh, stories with, uh, you know, not only not only with text, but with you know visual and multimedia elements as well. So, um, we you know when we started, we were looked upon a little skeptically, like "Who are you guys?" And you know, seven, eight years on, um, since our first piece appeared, um, I mean, media media um, outlets are now come to us regularly to discuss potential story ideas. So it's completely. Validated the model. Um, the interesting thing, I mean, we we are transparent about um, who funds us, but um, the bulk of our funding is is um, we we have no like single funder that that underwrites Fern. I mean, there's many foundations um, which make up about half of half of our funding, and then the rest is uh, individual donors. So. Um, what that means is that um, we're not dependent on any, you know, one source of funding, which is, is you know, it's a really healthy business position um, to be in and frankly gives us, um, uh, you know, a degree of, of flexibility in terms of, you know, the stories we choose going forward, the kind of work we do, et cetera. So, um, I, and I will say we have, we're a member of a larger organization called Institute for Nonprofit News, which kind of houses, as members, uh, many you know nonprofit news organizations, and we follow their um, uh, code of ethics, which you have to uh, sign on to um, to be a member. It was very similar to one we already had, but we adopted their language, and that includes like a strict firewall between our funding and our editorial processes. So, you know, no funder is reviewing our stories. Um, there's no, you know, say on what we do or what we don't do. That's, a, that's an editorial decision.
0: There was a story on Fern about a month ago related to the poultry industry. And right. there have been some other stories emerging in, I think it was Bloomberg, this week in a similar vein about the way that they are Uh, The industry appears to be kind of fixing the game and harming workers. How, um, you know, tell me, first of all, is there any, are there any uh, follow-up poultry-related reporting that that might be coming? That's a topic that is hugely on on the rise in North Carolina. Uh, As you probably know, the industry has a, a large presence in North Carolina and is, Largely unregulated in the state of North Carolina. So, uh, we're seeing, you know, during Hurricane Florence, we saw uh, 1.6 million chickens who were, you know, drowned in the storm and polluting the waterways. And, you know, they produce a lot of the same harms uh, as the industrial pork operations do. So, I'm curious as to whether that's a beat you're going to stay on. And then, more broadly, how do you how do you choose the topics that you want to pursue? Why why food, agriculture, and health?
2: Uh, I mean, that was that was, uh, to answer your last question first. I mean, that was that just came out of the the people who formed this organization. I had been writing about these issues from from the you know early aughts, and you know, so you know, had a book under my belt at that point, and you know, it was just. I knew a lot of the writers in the area. Um, and so it was really, uh, you know, the, the topical focus came out of, came out of the people that were really involved in the organization. Um, and the other thing is there were some, you know, there have been some regional and local, you know, news nonprofits, and we were one of the few at that point. There, there are more now. That had a, had, you know, a subject focus. Um, and that could be national or, or international because we've done international stories as well. Um, but they all fit into that, that, um, you know, that, that broad, those broad themes of food, agriculture, or, or environmental health. And, um, uh, in terms of the, the chicken story, um, that, uh, That story, as well as Barry's story, is part of a a series that we're doing on the impact of of, um, livestock operations on rural communities. And um, that story um, that we had uh, was specifically on the way poultry companies could potentially – they had the tools and the means – to fix prices that were paid for farmers, Um, and they're being sued for that. Um, They're also being sued for fixing prices of chicken that are, you know, eventually are sold to consumers. And, you know, giant retailers, you know, are are suing, supermarket retailers are suing the poultry um, companies for that. Um, And then we broke a story that the Department of Justice was investigating Uh, the poultry industry for price-fixing. So, and this latest story that you referred to in Bloomberg um, said that they were um, alleged that they were colluding on fixing wages for poultry workers. So if you look at the totality of the stories about the poultry industry, it's all about how they are trying, uh, allegedly trying to keep their costs low by keeping wages low to workers and um, prices low to farmers um, at the same time that they're trying to inflate um, and fix prices for the end product, you know, that are bought by consumers. And so they're standing in the middle and they get to, you know, it's allegedly uh, uh, widening their, their profits. So those there's like multiple lawsuits now going on against the poultry industry. And this, this DOJ, uh, investigation. So my, um, guess is, yeah, there's gonna be, there's gonna be more reporting on this, um, by us and by others. Um, and in our livestock series itself, um, we have, you know, more stories, uh, on deck, um, you know, that will, will come out, will, will be out in the coming months, so.
0: So, tell listeners how they can find those stories and older stories and support Fern.
2: Yeah. So, uh, they can, I think the most important thing they can do is just visit our website at thefern.org. And um, it's like the fern is spelled just like the plant, and it's thefern.org. Um, and sign up for our newsletters. Um, we have a newsletter that. Um, you know highlights our latest stories um, and uh you know we have very easy easily clickable buttons to donate to our organization um, uh which many people do and um, and at the at the site you can also search uh uh our stories uh for for particular stories or look at specific subjects that you're interested in whether it's you know whether it's having to do with farms or oceans or, you know, pollutants or, uh, you know, or, or whatever, you know, topics that you're interested in. And I I will say we also do highlight, uh, we're sort of focused on, you know, wrongdoing, but we do highlight, um, um, stories where, um, of, of sort of positive change and, um, you know, reforms, uh, you know, even among big companies, um, uh, you know, the food giants, as it were, to try and, you know, improve their operations. Um, and, you know, and frankly, we like those stories and our readers uh, like those stories uh, as well. And these can be everything from
3: really innovative
2: um, approaches to dealing with, you know, reducing food waste. Um, to you know, measures to um, change farming practices to combat uh, climate change. So, um, uh, in fact, we had a, we had another story on Smithfield that focused on a program that they were working with farmers to reduce fertilizer applications, which have implications for for climate change. So. You know, so there's a whole there. There is a range of stories, and um, you know, we try and we try and provide a, a a big picture of what's what's going on.
0: Thank you, and Barry. For those who are interested in following your work, what's the best way to do it?
1: My website is Barry Yeoman uh, That's B A R R Y Y E O M A N ncom I also have a newsletter. Uh, You can find a link to sign up on my website.
0: Thank you both for joining us today. This has been a really, really great conversation. I've enjoyed it. You are listening to journalists Barry Yeoman and Sam Fromarts discussing investigations into the state of North Carolina's regulation of industrial pork producers down east. Stay tuned for reports from a global demonstration demanding urgent action to combat climate change. This is The Dirt on WNCU 90.7 FM. We're closing out the show today with some sounds and commentary from the global youth climate strike that took place Friday, September 20th. Millions of people around the world left home, work, school, and came together in the public square to demand radical action from leaders at every level to combat the human drivers of climate change and to shine a spotlight on the people being impacted by extreme weather, rising seas, wildfires, and other symptoms of our changing climate. Often... These are indigenous communities or other communities of color or communities of low wealth or low political power. Here's what we heard at the demonstrations. What
4: do we want? Climate action! When do we want it? Now! What do we want? Climate action! When do we want
5: it? Now! Do we want? I want to start off by letting you know that there are water coolers to refill your containers because we are aiming for a zero-waste event. There's also a compost bin at the Toward Zero Waste table across from the stage as well as recycling bins. So
4: so yeah, you're here today but you need that what's more important is we need to keep contacting our political leaders and say we need action now. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
5: so it's time to put our body
4: My name is Bridget Stevenson and I'm from Durham, North Carolina. Um, I'm here because uh, climate change is such a big issue that's going to affect all of us, but particularly the younger generation, because we're going to have to grow up in a world that the climate is rapidly changing. And so our kids are going to be the ones who have to, to have to deal with this after us. So if we don't make a change now, then who is? Uh, my name's Lily Huang. i uh, 14 years old. I'm from Durham, North Carolina. I'm also here because our future's important, and we're the next generation. Like, the, the adults, they're, they're going to pass on, but we are left with this world, and it matters what we do in it. So...
0: Do y'all have excused absences from school today?
4: We do. Our principal was really generous and said that this counts as an educational opportunity. So he said that regardless of any political affiliations, any protests that happen during school hours, people are able to go to.
0: What do your signs say?
4: Oh, so one, mine has one side that says the oceans are rising, so are we. The other side says this is what democracy looks like. Uh, mine says my kids should know what polar bears are. That one. She, yes. did, she was not, unable to come because of school stuff, so, so I am she wanted to participate however she
1: could. My name's Elizabeth Norville. I live here in Raleigh, and I'm here because I'm extremely concerned about climate change
6: and the lack of action that is being taken by people who have the power to make change. My name is Emma Stevenson. I'm from the North Carolina School of Science
4: and Math in Durham. And I'm here because I'm really passionate about spreading awareness for climate change and stopping denial and ending ignorance.
0: Tell me about your sign. What's it say?
4: It says, when I say hot girl summer, this is not what I mean.
5: (laughs) Uh, So my name is E. I'm from Durham. And I am here because I am increasingly concerned about... um, climate change specifically deforestation in the amazon and in my home country of malaysia
0: tell me about your sign what's it say
5: my sign says capitalism kills humans and the planet and that is because capitalism is literally what is killing and what is causing climate change because why whenever it is more profitable to make to drill extract fossil fuels to make to slash and burn the forest for paper whenever that is more profitable than sustainability than a circular economy then returning your bottles instead of just recycling them as long as consumption is more profitable than renewal it will re- there's no eco-capitalism so like socialism is the only way to save the earth
4: um, my name's maya Tarter and i'm 12 years old and i'm from carborough and i'm here to um speak for the environment and because we want to protect the environment and keep make a um, livable future for our generations.
0: Did you have a, an excused absence from school today? Um, no Really Wow it's
4: Unexcused
5: absence and I did ask about it. I think given that we went from Chapel Hill to Raleigh um, and that they're missing the entire day, they aren't yet considering it excused um, I was gonna say. oh the high schools are and at least two of them are excused but for some reason middle school and elementary schools I, I haven't pressed it yet but yeah it's kind of funny maybe there's not enough of us yet
0: are you guys uh, having fun what are you looking forward to today uh,
4: um, um, protecting the environment the, and showing that we need to um, act and helping the animals the animals What's your name? Julian. How old are you? Seven. Oh, but okay. in four days, Isaac. I'm turning eight. <laughs> What's that? In four days, I'm turning eight. Oh, happy birthday. My name's Isaac, and I'm um 10.
0: What do your signs say? Did you make those signs? Um, Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me what they're made out of?
4: Um, they're just like cloth like and paint. And paint.
0: Did you have fun making them? Yeah. yeah. What does yours say? Rise up. What does this say? Uh,
4: This is why we can't have the nice things. What does yours say? Um, It says, rise, what befalls earth befalls the children of earth.
0: All right. So I'm going to do what's called an ancient earth honoring song from the Chumash Nation. And then I'm going to finish it with a, a water honoring song from
7: the Lakota Nation. Um, and these songs work in harmony. We believe that our grandmother's flesh is the earth and her blood is the water in the streams and um, it's not an unpopular idea. You look in your own culture's history way back uh, the mother was
0: always thought of as a relative by uh, the original peoples of the planet.
1: Take way,
0: take way, take way, take the hudda, way.
7: Look around at the diversity here. Do not let them tell you this is not an intersectional, interracial, powerful, national movement. And do not let them silo us. The only way forward is it together.
0: Okay, so uh, tell me what your name is, why you're here, and how you got here.
6: Yeah, my name is Megan Raisley. Um, we're here to support the global climate strikes happening today all across the world and show climate leaders in New York that we care about climate action. Um, and we got here by biking from the Chapel Hill Climate Strike to Raleigh.
0: You biked on bicycles? Like regular, not e cycles or anything like that? On,
6: on regular bicycles, yeah. How did it go? It went pretty well. Um, we had one person with a little bit of a pop too, but they're on their way. Everything's good. So yeah so there were 16 people that went from chapel hill to raleigh um, but in chapel hill we had more of a local ride that probably had about 30 people Um, we had about nine miles on the tobacco trail which was really good Um, generally traffic was pretty nice to us so that was lucky Uh, my name's joshua levinson i also rode in with the group i kind of decided last minute just seemed like an exciting fun thing to do and yeah i loved biking and having all the conversations with a bunch of different interesting students who have been actually working on climate change as well um, i've been starting to work in advocacy the last year and i'm even running for local election here back in chapel hill and yeah i think it's really important that we get the word out there and help people realize that this is one of the most essential things that we need to come together on so what are you running for i'm running for mayor in chapel hill
0: Um, Tell me about what what role you see uh, bicycles playing in the fight against climate change.
6: Yeah, I see bicycles as the number one best alternative for people who can ride bicycles or even electric bikes being a great alternative, electric scooters. I think Chapel Hill needs to do everything we can to promote that as well as maybe be a leader for other parts of North Carolina because we have access to some resources that we could pilot some new programs to really create full range of bike lanes and alternative transportation that supports that. It's nice. Chapel Hill has free buses, and I'm able to use those with my bike and commute to Durham for work certain days.
0: Since you're running for mayor, I have to ask you uh, what your approach to the university's use of fossil fuels uh, is going to be?
6: Yeah, I'm desperate to see the coal plant shift around um, and not necessarily just move completely towards fracked gas. I could see maybe some of the methane being used coming from like thaw of permafrost and other things, but I don't want it to be coming from fracked gas and the pipelines that are associated with that. I would love to see Chapel Hill start to lead in renewable energy and create alternatives that could also create that steam using solar. Um, Yeah, so Chapel Hill doing that. Also in in our municipal buildings, creating energy efficiency and low-income homes, doing everything that we can to, yeah, every aspect of city governance and the way that we try to educate our public is... Essential not just in the energy that use, but also even in our waste. I love seeing things like zero waste here because we need to start composting. That's also creating a huge amount of methane that is 25 times more powerful than carbon. So.
7: You know uh, Duke Energy has a monopoly to provide electricity here in North Carolina. Maybe I should have said, a license to kill. If you don't believe they have a license to kill, I invite you to follow me back to Goldsboro, Wayne County, and I can show you where some of the bodies are buried. I have a lot of friends and associates that have died as a result of the poisonous metals in the coal ash, both young and old, and they're buried, and I'd be glad to show you the evidence. You know, Duke has made a lot of money with their monopoly generating electricity in North Carolina. I'm not concerned about the money they made, but I'm concerned about what they've done with their money. They bought a lot of things. You know, some years ago, they bought a governor. Anybody remember that? Not too long of that, after that, they bought some legislation. Now, as we speak, they're waiting for another piece of legislation to come out of the oven, if you will. Senate Bill 559.
5: is here to share a lesson she has learned as a teenager in the climate movement.
3: Hey guys, before I start, I want you all to raise your signs in the air again. Look around at all these people who are here today. Tell me if that makes you inspired. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Inspiration. My name is Hallie Turner. I'm a 17-year-old from Raleigh, and I've been fighting the climate crisis since I was eight years old. During those past nine years of my life, adults have had a lot to say to me about that. One of the most common things I hear is that word, inspiration. Wow, you're such an inspiration. I wasn't doing that when I was your age. I'm glad we have teenagers like you here to save the world. The thing is, I have a hard time being inspired by climate activism today at all because the fact that we are here fighting this hard to make the future of our planet a central political topic is so deeply uninspiring to me to begin with. You know, maybe you look around today at all the people that have come to Raleigh against the climate crisis and you are inspired that your children, and in some cases your grandchildren, are here standing up for a future that they believe in. But that future that my generation believes in and is fighting for is not just some vague, unattainable dream. It is a future that we completely and fundamentally deserve. I'm speaking to my parents' generation when I say this my grandparents' generation, the generations of leaders who have failed time and time again to give their children a healthy, habitable planet to grow up on. Sure, be inspired. If I were you, looking at my grandchildren working so hard to achieve something they so fundamentally deserve, like, I don't know, a livable climate, I would be inspired too.
6: But I would also be
3: angry that it even had to happen in the first place when people tell me, that's so inspiring. I wasn't doing that when I was your age. I kind of have to think, well, I know, because if you had been, I wouldn't have to be here today. Something else I get told often is, the climate crisis is so massive, daunting, paralyzing. How are you not hopeless? My answer is this, I don't think it matters if I'm hopeful, just like I don't think it matters if any of today's leaders are hopeful. What matters is that they do what is necessary. We have to keep the planet below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. We have to do this by reducing carbon emissions to zero by 2050 in line with the 2018 IPCC report. And we have to do this in a just and sustainable way. That's how my leaders feel about climate change. Climate change doesn't care how we feel about climate change, but I care that they accept the science. I care that they have the initiative to act on it, and I care that my generation gets to live on a habitable planet. I look around at the millions of brave young people around the world and all of you here in Raleigh today who are standing up for a future that we collectively believe in. And I am inspired. But what I want to leave you with today is the fact that this isn't just inspirational. It's necessary. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the show today. A big thanks to Al Dawson and the rest of the production team at WNCU. Visit WNCU.org to learn more about how you can support this program and other community radio programs like it. And a big thanks to the North Carolina Conservation Network for helping to underwrite this show. I'm your host, Brian Powell. Follow us on Twitter at TheDirtFM. And check out The Dirt Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Until next time, be good, y'all.